Amen. It's good to be together worshiping Jesus today, isn't it? I want to welcome everyone in our campus here at Mesa, those at South Mountain and Fountain Hills who are joining us, and everyone who's online today. It's good to be together, worshiping the Lord, and then we're going to be studying the Word of God. And we're in the book of Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible. And today we're going to be talking about the Passover. Last week we talked about the first nine plagues. And I heard a little boy uh, told his father this uh, story about what he learned at church. And so the story goes like this. The little boy goes home with his family. The dad asks him, what did you guys learn in church today? And the boy says, well, our Sunday school teacher taught us about how Moses led the uh, Israelites out of Egypt. And the father's curious. You know, you want to know what your kids learn in church. He asked asked him, how? What happened? The boy said, well... Moses snuck behind enemy lines into Egypt, and him and Pharaoh fought with lightsabers. Then Moses led the Israelites to the Red Sea, and they couldn't get across, so he called the Army Corps of Engineers, who built a pontoon bridge, and they went across on that. But the Egyptians started to chase him, so they called jets to fly in and bomb the Egyptians, and they were all drowned in the Red Sea. And the dad said, what? Your teacher taught you that? And he said, nah, but you'd never believe the story she told us. It's a pretty crazy story, isn't it? And these plagues that we've been talking about were meant to tear down the Egyptian gods and prove to the Hebrew people that Yahweh, the Lord, is superior. See, the Hebrew people had lived in Egypt for so long, they didn't even really know our God, but they were very familiar with the Egyptians' gods. And the Lord, he could have just killed all the Egyptians overnight, and the people could have just walked on out into the promised land. But God wanted to methodically tear down the respect the Israelites might have had for these Egyptian gods and these pagan gods so that they would know that the Lord is God alone, that he reigns over all. God didn't want to just get the Israelites out of Egypt. He wanted to get Egypt out of the Israelites. And he didn't want to just deliver them physically, but also theologically so that they would know Yahweh, I am, is the Lord. And then the 10th plague we're going to talk about today We read how the same angel of death who killed the firstborn sons of the Egyptians would pass over the Israelites who obeyed God's instruction. And the Passover, which we'll be talking about, shows that our God has the power to save or to destroy. God has the power to save or destroy. So if you want to turn in your Bible to Exodus 12, we're going to read a longer passage here. And starting in verse 7, it says... They are to take some of the blood from the Passover lamb and smear it on the sides and top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. The same night they must roast the meat over a fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. Do not eat any of the meat raw or boiled in water. The whole animal, including the head, legs, and internal organs, must be roasted over a fire. Do not leave any of it until the next morning. Burn whatever is not eaten before morning. These are your instructions for eating this meal. Be fully dressed, wear your sandals, and carry your walking stick in your hand. Eat the meal with urgency, for this is the Lord's Passover. On that night I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorposts, will serve as a sign marking your houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. Okay, so then we jump to verse 21 where Moses passes on the instructions. And he called all the elders of Israel together and said to them, Go pick out a lamb or young goat for each of your families and slaughter the Passover animal. Drain the blood into a basin. Then take the bundle of a hyssop branches and dip it into the blood. Brush the hyssop across the top and sides of the door frames of your houses. And no one may go out through the door until morning. For the Lord will pass through the land to strike down the Egyptians. But when he sees the blood on the top and sides of the door frame, the Lord will pass over your home. He will not permit his death angel to enter your house and strike you down. Okay, so we're getting a picture of what's playing out here. And then we're going to jump to verse 29. And then it says, At that night, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn sons in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn son of the prisoner in the dungeon. 
Even the firstborn of their livestock were killed. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the people of Egypt woke up during the night, and a loud wailing was heard throughout the land of Egypt. There was not a single house where someone had not died. Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron during the night. Get out, he ordered them. Leave my people and take the rest of the Israelites with you. Go and worship the Lord as you have requested. Okay, so we're reading about how the angel of death struck down the firstborn son of Pharaoh and all of the firstborn sons in the land. And it's a fitting punishment for Pharaoh who killed the firstborn Hebrew babies. He then enslaved God's people and rebelled against God. This 10th plague, which God predicted to Moses and described from the very beginning, uh, he told him this would happen. This plague showed not just that God would bring justice to Pharaoh, but it also serves to kind of paint a picture for us as to the serious consequences of sin. And that's something that we want to pay attention to because you and I are sinners. So this is relevant to us still today. In Romans, it says, for all have sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Isn't that true? Come on, somebody today. You're like, I fall short of God's standard. And maybe you're here and you're like, I don't fall short of God's standard. Yeah, you do. You just lied. You definitely fall short. And then there are some people that are like, well, I don't believe in God the way you do, or I don't really believe in the Bible. And so I don't really care about God's standard. And I would say, okay, well, you still fall short of the standard, even your own standard. So, for example, if we, let's say, hung an audio recorder around your neck and everywhere you went for a whole year, we recorded everything you said. What if we just recorded all the statements you made about what other people should do? Man, they should be nicer. Well, she shouldn't gossip like that. Man, that guy's mean. He should treat his wife better than that. You should really let people merge when they're trying to get in. You need to slow down. You know, bosses should treat their employees better than that. We should speak kindly to others. All these things you said other people should do, if we just held you to your own standard, you wouldn't even meet that standard, would you? We don't meet God's standard, and ultimately his standard is the only one that matters. And the penalty for sin has always been death. There's going to be a lot of talk about death in this sermon. It's a different type of sermon. But sin creates a debt. And the higher the authority level of the one you sin against, the greater the debt incurred. For example, when I was young, I would sin against my siblings all the time. I'm not the only one in here, I know. And when that happens, my siblings were kind of peers, and so my mom would make me apologize. You need to apologize to your siblings. So you come up and you're like, sorry. <laughs> and that was usually the end of it. Then later I grew up, I became an adult, and I had to do all the adult things, pay bills and file taxes. How many of you remember when you first started paying taxes? It's a rude awakening, isn't it? I was doing my own taxes on TurboTax, and one year I made a mistake. I don't know, I, re I recorded something wrong, and I got a letter from the IRS, which is never a good day, getting a letter from the IRS. It's not exciting. It's usually intimidating, and I opened it up. It wasn't that big of a deal. They're like, you paid these taxes wrong, and you owe us this much, and, and then there's a fee you owe us as well. And in that moment, the IRS is a higher authority level than, you know, my family that I sinned against. When you sin against the IRS, you can't just be like, well, I'm sorry, you actually got to pay the fees that they required of you because their you know, authority is greater. Then when it comes to sinning against God, he is the highest level authority and he is purely holy. So sin against God requires the highest penalty be paid, which is the penalty of death. And it's always been that way. It says in Romans, the wages of sin is death. You go back to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis, in the Garden of Adam and Eve, uh, Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were at, and they sinned against God, and that's when death entered the world. And so we're going to kind of start back at the beginning, and what I'm hoping in this message to do is show you the thread of redemption that God weaves throughout Scripture and the story that He tells us in His Word, and how intentional God has always been about saving us from sin and the death associated with it. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned. They broke God's commands. And in that moment, shame entered into their world. It says they realized they were naked, which would have been a weird day. You know, all of a sudden you're like, wait a second. We're naked. And they start trying to hide themselves in bushes. And 
It's true that sin brings shame, doesn't it? We think about some of the things we've done that we're not proud of, and a lot of times there's shame associated with that. Some of the things you've done that maybe you never told anyone about, that you never got caught doing, you think if anyone knew what I was really like or what I really did, they would not love me. They would not accept me. There's shame that comes with sin. And you think about God. He had just started, created Adam and Eve, first humans, and the very first humans sinned. I'll be honest, if I was God, I would have been tempted to do a hard reset. You know what? These ones are spoiled. Let's just start over. I don't have time for that drama. Just hit the reset, control, alt, delete. Adam and Eve, take two. Here we go. That's not what he did. He made a plan to redeem them. It even says in Genesis 3, the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. They were naked and ashamed and God clothed them. But you read that passage, where do you think the skin for those garments came from? God had to shed the blood of an innocent animal as a sacrifice to fashion clothes to cover their shame. And that's a consistent theme throughout scripture that sin creates shame that only God can cover. So I have a lot of good news and bad news in this message. I'll give you the bad news first. The bad news is that we are sinners and our sin against God merits death. There's no way around that. But then there is good news. The good news is that God has provided a substitute. I'm going to talk a lot about substitutes. Remember having a substitute teacher in school? It was awesome. You come into class, you see the substitute teachers there that day, and you know it's going to be an interesting day. You might just watch a movie instead of doing lessons. It's awesome when that happens. You know everyone's going to be kind of crazy when there's a substitute. Everyone's going to push the limit to see what they can get away with, all kinds of craziness. So it's going to be a fun day. Well, it's even better to have a sacrificial substitute who pays the price for your wickedness. If sin requires death, it's good to know that God has provided a substitute. There's going to be a death because of your sins, but it doesn't have to be your death. You go back to the story of Abraham. Abraham was very old and him and his wife Sarah had no children. God pro promised to give them a child through miraculous intervention. And eventually they did have a, a child at a very old age. And you can imagine how joyful that was for them to have this son finally, a son named Isaac. And they were celebrating God's faithfulness and his promises fulfilled. And you know they loved their son. The Bible says they loved their son. And so then we read about this in Genesis 22. God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Remember that, the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. How many of you, if you were doing your prayer and Bible reading one day and God told you to sacrifice your only son, you would say, what? Did I hear you right? I know my kid's crazy, and some days I think I could kill him, but I don't actually want to kill him, let alone Abraham, his only son, who he waited a lifetime for. God says to sacrifice your son. It was a test. And you can imagine Abraham trusting in God and leading his son on a three-day journey to the region of Moriah. And Isaac's walking along with him. And scripture says he's got the wood for the sacrifice on his shoulder. And they got flame. And Isaac's like, um, Dad. Yeah, son. We got the wood and the fire, but... Where's the, the, the lamb for the sacrifice? You know, something doesn't add up here. And Abraham's like, well, <laughs> he says very prophetically on multiple levels, God will provide the lamb. God will provide the lamb. He didn't know how right he was. In Genesis 22, it goes on to say, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven as he was about to sacrifice his son. Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to, haunt, uh, to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up there in, in a thicket. He saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Say the word instead. 
instead. It was a substitute. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. This is great. This phrase, the Lord will provide. That's where we get the name Jehovah Jireh. My provider, God, our provider, you may have heard it said, probably a more accurate pronunciation is Yahweh Ra'ah. It means the Lord will provide. And I love it, it says on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And when we think about God, our provider, and we'll talk about, you know, Jehovah Jireh, my provider, God will provide. We tend to think of God providing for our needs financially when we use that name a lot of times. You know, God's going to help me with that cell phone bill I can't pay. God's going to get me out of credit card debt because he's the Lord, our provider. But the original use of this name was not just God providing for your financial debt, God providing for rather our sin debt is what it was talking about. Abraham says, God will provide. And so you can imagine, as you think about this scene, how crazy it would have been for Abraham to be in that position, about to sacrifice his only son. The angel of the Lord, and we talked about this in previous weeks when the Old Testament says, the angel of the Lord. It's usually a reference to the pre-incarnate person of Jesus. The son of God is called a theophany or God appearing before Jesus came to earth. The son of God was present and active on the earth. He's the one who intervened when Abraham was about to sacrifice his son, his one and only son whom he loved and said, stop, you don't need to do that. The Lord will provide. And in that moment, I'm sure Abraham felt a lot of relief. God did come through and he saw a ram to sacrifice as a substitute for his son. So you read a story like that and uh, if you're being honest, you probably wonder on some levels like, what was that all about? Sacrifice your son? What a weird story. What a weird test. But I think it was very intentional. I think God said, I want my people to feel the weight of sin. I want them to feel the agony of the idea of sacrificing your only beloved son. And he stepped in and said, I'm not going to require you to do that. But because, Abraham, you were willing to obey me, I will bless you. I will multiply you and your descendants. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. See, it wasn't really about the killing in that moment. It was about believing. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament adds commentary about that moment. And it says, it was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. Think about that. It was a three-day journey from where Abraham received the command to sacrifice his son to the region of Moriah. And that whole time, he's probably walking along with his son, thinking of his son as if he is as good as gone. His only son, Isaac, he's mourning. He's trying to keep up appearances. He's trying not to show all of his cards. But in his heart, it's like Isaac is dead. And you can imagine how hard that would have been for him. But in that moment, God brought Isaac back from the brink of death. Just like Abraham guessed he could, he trusted in God. Abraham trusted in God. And God provided a substitute. We see this play out again with Moses and the Israelites when they're in Egypt. And as this 10th plague is about to come and death is about to strike the land, God provides a substitute again. Through the death of another, God's people were spared. And so we read about that as we started this sermon out, how the Passover lamb had to be slain and his blood had to be applied to the doors where the Israelites were at in Egypt, and God gave them very specific instructions for doing this. He told them to pick out a lamb on the 10th day of the month. They called that month Nisan, 
pick out your lamb on the 10th day of the month. That was their first month of the year. And they were to select a one-year-old lamb or goat without defect. And they couldn't pick out like the crippled lamb. They didn't want anyway. They had to pick out a perfect lamb. And then this is where it gets interesting. They had to take it into their home and live with it for four days. So that's different. That's where you go, what's going on there? You realize back in that day, people were used to slaughtering animals to eat them. We're not really used to that anymore. You ask a little kid, where does meat come from? They'll say, the grocery store. I went down the meat aisle. I found it all wrapped up. I love it. Threw it on the Barbie. It was great. You know, meat's awesome. If they saw where that meat came from, they would probably cry. And you'd have to explain like the whole circle of life to them. And it would be be a real thing. But back in this day, they were used to slaughtering animals. You know, back in the olden days, women, they'd go out to the chicken coop. They'd just like break their necks, bring them inside. You know, like how many of you ladies would love to do that today? Dudes would go out to the you know, farmlands, slice some throats, and they would put some meat on the fire, and they'd cook it up for dinner. But this was different. They weren't used to sacrificing and killing pets. And God told them, bring this lamb in your house and live with it for four days. Take special care of it. So you can just imagine they bring the lamb, you know, one-year-old lamb, perfect, cute lamb into the house and the little kids are running around playing with the lamb. They probably named it. Cute little lamb chop. Mom, I love lamb chop. Can I keep him? Like like brushing its wool, like washing it, you know, like feeding it grain from their hands. (laughs) Ha ha ha, lamb chop. And then on the 14th day of the month, they had to cut the lamb's throat. Why did God do that? I think God wanted them to feel the agony of the sacrifice that was necessary to pay the price for their salvation. God wanted them to feel repulsed by the sacrifice that had to be made. It was supposed to be gruesome. It wasn't supposed to be a comfortable, pleasant moment. The same reaction a lot of you have where you go, oh, that's the same reaction they had. As they cut this lamb's throat and drained its blood into a basin. God gave them instructions for eating the lamb. They were to not cut it up or butcher it like they normally would. Although some commentaries say they probably did take the intestines out. They just didn't cut out the rest of it or take out the organs like they normally would. They didn't break any of its bones. And they had to roast the meat over a fire, not boil it or eat it raw. And so maybe you wonder what that looks like. When I think of them roasting it over a fire, I kind of think of like a barbecue where you, you know, you like put a a pig in a pig roast. You're kind of like roasting it over the fire, like a rotisserie chicken there spinning. But this is what Middle Eastern uh, ovens looked like. Like they were called earthen ovens. And this is actually what it would have looked like where they roasted the lamb. They had a complete enclosed space and an opening either on the side or on the top. And they would insert the lamb in there. And then it would roast over hot coals and flames and wood in that setting there. The lamb was entombed in the oven where it roasted and then they would take it out and they would eat its body and ingest it into them. God wanted them to take in the lamb that would save them. He wanted the lamb to become a part of them as it nourished them. It was a very specific command God gave them how to treat and eat this lamb. And then they had to take its blood and brush the blood on their doorposts on the top and on the bottom. And then God said, stay inside, stay inside the house until the morning. It goes on to say in verse 24 of Exodus 12, remember these instructions are a permanent law that you and your descendants must observe forever. When you enter the land the Lord has promised to give you, you will continue to observe this ceremony. Then your children will ask, what does this ceremony mean? And you will reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, for he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt. And though he struck the Egyptians, he spared our families. So here's what God does. He establishes through Moses and the law of Moses, the sacrificial worship system. And we'll talk more about that in future weeks, but it involved a lot of sacrifice. 
Year after year, the Passover lamb was brought into their homes and slain. And the kids will be like, mommy, daddy, why do we have to kill lamb chop? And they were to teach their children, this is the Passover lamb. This goes back to our time in Egypt where God passed over us and we were spared from death because the blood of the lamb was applied to our family's home. And these Passover sacrifice continued year after year, but there were other sacrifices year after year, like on the day of atonement, there were burnt offerings. There were sin offerings. Every day at the temple, there was necks getting cut as lambs and goats and bulls and birds were killed and their blood was drained. Slice, slice, slice. It was gruesome and a lot of blood flowed. Year after year, day after day, blood was shed because the wages of sin is death. And when we sin, Someone has to die so that we can live. This goes on for hundreds of years. Blood is shed, and that blood temporarily covers the sins of the people by God's mercy. So sacrifice becomes a part of the cultural fabric of the Jews. They started out with sacrifice, and they experienced freedom and life through sacrifice, and they experienced victory in battle and blessing through sacrifice. All of this was because God wanted to drill it down deep into their psyches. It's like he wanted them to recognize that he was doing something here. And then eventually he starts to spell it out for them in vivid clarity so that anyone who has eyes to see will recognize. It goes all the way through Old Testament times to the prophets where in Isaiah 52 through 53, there's a prophecy about the Messiah who would come. It says this in Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. Does that sound familiar to anybody? This prophecy was accepted to be about the Messiah who would come. And that wasn't really controversial among the Jews until Jesus actually came. And the events surrounding Jesus' life and his death were eerily similar to the prophecy in Isaiah 53. And then it became a source of controversy among the Jews. Do you know that in Jewish synagogues, it is very common to this day for them to skip over Isaiah 53? There's one quote I read. It says, the 17th century Jewish historian Raphael Levi admitted that long ago the rabbis used to read Isaiah 53 in synagogues. But after it caused arguments and great confusion, the rabbis decided that the simplest thing would be to just take that prophecy out of the regular readings in the synagogues. That's why today when we read Isaiah 52, we stop in the middle of the chapter and the week after we jump straight to Isaiah 54. So for... Hundreds of years they read Isaiah 53 and they're like, yeah, this is about the Messiah who's going to come to rescue Israel. And then when the Christian gospel started to spread and people started to make connections, the Jewish rabbis who didn't accept Jesus said, we can't keep reading this thing because there's too many people pointing to Jesus. All of this was meant to lead God's people to a greater sacrifice who would come. All along, God wanted people to see that the penalty for sin is death, but that he had provided a substitute for their sins. So let me show you a picture and see if you recognize this. Do you recognize this location, anybody? Okay, maybe some of you do. Uh, Maybe some of you are pretty sure, but you don't want to embarrass yourself in front of your friends, so you're just answering to yourself. Okay, let's go back to the next picture. Um, this is the next, so this, this is what it would have looked like in Jesus' day. This was the Temple Mount. You might identify it as, this is the Temple of Herod. By the way, this is a, a model, a large model. They didn't have cameras back then, so this isn't like an actual photogra- photography thing right here. So this is, this is the Temple Mount, but do you know what you're, you're looking at right here? You're looking at the Mountain of Moriah. This is the region of the mountain of Moriah. So here's what happened. (laughs) The same place where Abraham was going to sacrifice his son Isaac and God intervened to provide a substitute is the same place where David bought a threshing floor from a Jebusite and built an altar to the Lord and sacrificed, which is the same place 
where Solomon built the temple and the sacrificial system was established and continued day in, day out, and again and again this happened so that people would see the connections. And the connections, they don't stop there. People went to the temple on a regular basis daily to offer sacrifices for sin. And around the time of Jesus' death, it was a special high holiday where the Day of Atonement and Passover, they were happening at the same time. So there was all kinds of sacrifices going on. And while the priests were sacrificing on Mount Moriah in the temple, a stone's throw from here, the Lamb of God, Jesus, was being sacrificed on a hill called Golgotha or Calvary. It says in John 1.29, the next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So you realize the connections in the scriptures. When you start to see how all of scripture connects, it blows your mind, doesn't it? The more you read of it, the more you understand it, the more you appreciate it. And you only need to know the basics to believe in Jesus and get saved and, and be a Christian. But, but as you read more of the Bible and you gain understanding, your appreciation for the depths of God's love grows. And, and your appreciation for the mastery of God's plan to save us, it, it increases. And you see what God did. And it's like he's been doing this thing on purpose from the very beginning. He always had a plan to save us and all the sacrificial system pointed to Jesus. Back on Mount Moriah, Abraham prophetically said, the Lord will provide. Now we as Christians, we know the Lord did provide a lamb on that same mountain. It was the Passover lamb of God. Jesus is the substitutionary sacrificial lamb of God. Amen. 4,000 years. It was 4,000 years earlier that God covered Adam's shame in the garden. And now Jesus covers our shame for all time and removes our guilt. 2,000 years after Adam, God asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son. But then God provided a lamb as a substitute. Isaac went up that mountain carrying the wood for the sacrifice on his own back. And 2,000 years later... Jesus, God's only beloved son, went up the mountain carrying a wooden cross on his back. He took his place. After three days of being as good as dead, God brought Isaac back from the brink of death, just like he brought Jesus back to life after three days in tombs. And just like Abraham guessed, God was able to raise his son back to life. 1,400 years before Jesus, the Passover lamb was sacrificed in Egypt. We don't have to do that anymore because the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. It says in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. All those lambs year after year that were killed, their blood was drained, they were imagery of the Passover lamb who would be called Jesus, who would pay the price for sin and save us from death once for all time. The blood of Jesus was shed on a cross. His blood was on that cross where his hands were, the crown of thorns around his head, and his feet bleeding, and the blood that was shed for him saved us from death. It goes all the way back to the Egyptians where they drained the blood from the Passover lamb and they put it on their doorpost. The Bible says on the top and on the sides. On the top and on the sides. It was all foreshadowing of Jesus who would come and save us as the Passover lamb. But it's sad that so many of God's people, the Hebrew people, the Jews, they completely missed what God was doing. That's why even today, Judaism is an incomplete religion. They're still waiting for a Messiah who already came and left. So think about it this way. Why do you think God allowed the temple to be destroyed? after Jesus died and rose again. Do you think about this? The last 2,000 years, the sacrificial system that God established through Moses has been unable to take place. There have been no sacrifices according to the law of Moses for the forgiveness of sin. Why would God let the temple be destroyed so that no sacrifices could happen if the people needed those sacrifices to be forgiven of sin? 
God let that system collapse because he established a new, better system in his place. The people don't need to slaughter lambs or goats or bulls because Jesus' blood has been shed, which is far superior. It cleanses us from sin once for all time. All those goats and sheep and bulls that were killed for thousands of years, they didn't actually save anyone. Killing them was an act of faith in the greater sacrifice to come. In Hebrews 9, it says, With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. This is talking about Jesus. So Christianity, you see this, is Judaism fulfilled. Christianity is Judaism fulfilled. If you have any friends and they're Jews and they want to talk to you about the difference between Christianity and Judaism, you can just tell them, hey man, Christianity is just Judaism fulfilled. We know the Messiah already came. He shed his blood as the Passover lamb for the forgiveness of sin once for all time. He ascended to heaven and he is seated at the right hand of the Father and he's coming again for everyone who believes in him. But this is very important. You got to get this last point. There is no salvation without the blood. I want you to understand this. God in Egypt, he didn't automatically spare every Israelite. He spared those who applied the blood to their homes. It's not enough just to be associated with the people of God. It's not enough just that the Passover lamb was killed. You actually had to apply the blood to your home. Hebrews 9 says, for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So this whole blood thing is really important. And I know if you're new to church, you probably hear about like blood in songs and a lot of references to blood. And if you don't know any of the scriptures, you might be like, what is all that about? All this blood stuff. This is the blood is important. There can be no salvation without the blood. It's not identifying as a Christian on a survey that saves you from sin. It's not that your mama calls herself a Christian and she prays for you. That saves your soul from hell. It's not going under the water in baptism and getting a certificate. I was baptized. I got the t-shirt. It's not volunteering in a soup kitchen or saying, I'm going to try to do more good than bad. It's the blood of Jesus. Without the blood of Jesus, no good deed can save you. But with the blood of Jesus, no evil deed can damn you. There's an old, old hymn. I was going to sing it, but my voice is a little spotty right now. I'm gonna... It goes, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Jesus brings us life through death. And Jesus brings us life after death. Jesus died so that we could have life and we don't have to fear the day we die. And that's what people fear about death. It's not that you might die. They fear what comes after death. And God makes it very clear that after death, all humans, their souls go to one of two places, heaven or hell. Heaven and hell are real places. They're real places. They exist. Heaven is a place of joy and celebration. Hell is a place of suffering and anguish. Your soul is eternal. Your body is temporal. But your soul is eternal. God intended your soul not to be destroyed, but to exist forever. And so what decisions you make in this life will have eternal consequences. What is eternity? It means forever. I know a lot of you grew up watching the Sandlot game, you know, forever. After 10,000 years, you're no closer to the end because it's for eternity. So you gotta be ready for death. And Jesus said in John 11, anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never ever die. Do you believe this? The question is, do you believe this? You're going to die unless Jesus comes back first. But unless he does, the statistic is perfect. One out of every one people dies doesn't matter how healthy you eat or how much you exercise, you're still going to die. So the question really is, who will die for your sins? It's either going to be you or Jesus Christ. Nobody who believes in Jesus truly dies. And what I mean by that and what the scriptures mean by that 
Scriptures talk about a physical death, and they talk about a spiritual death. The physical death is something that we all experience. We die, our bodies get buried or cremated, our soul as a Christian goes to be with Jesus in heaven, and someday Jesus is going to return, and our bodies are going to be raised and transformed into glorified bodies, and our soul and our bodies are going to reconnect, and so heaven will be a physical place for eternity, which is awesome. It's going to be amazing. I've preached whole sermons on heaven. For people who reject God's son, Jesus, when they die, their soul immediately goes to hell. And Jesus made that very clear. Their body goes into the ground as well. When Jesus returned, their soul and their body are reunited. They're judged. And everyone who rejected Jesus is thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity with the devil and his demons. The Bible calls this the second death. It's a spiritual death. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, anyone who believes in me will die, will never die. Even though they die, they will live after they die. That's what he meant. I know it's a little confusing on some levels. That's why you have to read the whole Bible. Amen. You got to read the whole thing to piece it together sometimes. So the question is, will you die for your sins and experience the second death as well? Or will Jesus die in your place so you can experience eternal life? Are you ready for death? Do you believe in Jesus? I want you to be ready for death so you don't have to fear it. How you think about death probably does say a lot about your status. If you're a Christian and you believe in Jesus, you might have some anxiety about the idea of dying because you've never been through that before. <laughs> so you're like, I don't really know what it's going to be like. I'm hoping it's not too painful. But, but you have a peace that surpasses understanding because you know where you're going when you die. Amen? Yes. If you're not a Christian and you think about death, it's terrifying. Because you have no idea what comes after that. Or, or if you do, you know it's not going to be good. And you know you're guilty because you know you've sinned. So if you think about death and it fills you with fear, it might be an indicator that you're not yet ready for death. And I, I want everyone to be ready. And so we're going to do this service a little different today. First, I want to give you an opportunity to accept Jesus. And then I've got just a few more words I want to share with you before we close the message. But, but first, let's do this. At all of our campuses and online, can we bow our heads and close our eyes together? And I want to ask you, if you today need to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior so that the blood that he shed on the cross can be applied to your sin, so that you can be forgiven of sin and have your name written in the Lamb's book of life, knowing that your eternity is secure with Christ, that you will reign and rule with him in heaven, that you can be adopted into God's family and you don't have to fear what lies beyond the grave. Maybe you're here today and you feel God pulling you and drawing you and calling you to accept Jesus, the lamb that was slain in your place. This could be the moment that changes your eternity. And what you decide to do in this moment could have eternal implications for your soul. So if you're here and you know, I'm not ready for death. I'm not ready to see what comes next. I know I'm guilty of sin. And that fills me with fear to think about death. Then this is your moment to be set free and saved from sin. So maybe you're here. You're like, I know that's me. I'm ready. I'm ready. I want to lead you in a prayer right now. It's not like a magic prayer, but I just want to help you express what's in your heart. It's really your faith in Jesus to save you. That's what saves you. When you believe in him, that he died on the cross in your place and rose again, that's what applies the blood of the lamb to your sins. So if that's you, will you pray this prayer with me and just say yourself, just say, God, I ask you to save me. I confess that I have sinned against you and I need your forgiveness. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He died on the cross for my place as the substitute for me. He rose again so that I could have eternal life and victory over death. I thank you today that I'm forgiven and that I'm your child and that I know you love me and you'll never leave me. I'm gonna follow you from this day forward. In Jesus' name I pray. And just at all of our locations, let's keep our heads bowed just for one second. If you just prayed that prayer to accept Jesus, I'm gonna ask you just to raise your hand up between you and God. Just raise your hand up right now. That's great, thank you, thank you. Anybody else? You're like, I just prayed that prayer to accept Jesus at all of our locations online.
just, I think it's powerful to respond physically to the decision that you just made. It helps to solidify it in your heart. So go ahead and just raise your hand up if you just prayed that prayer to accept Jesus. Thanks, that's great, awesome. Awesome, thank you, sir. The only thing we're gonna do is just slip you a Bible that has a Bible reading plan and some resources in it to help you. And if you don't get it, you can stop at the table on the way out and we'll give it to you there. It's an orange table. All right, let's raise our, our heads, open our eyes. Can we first just celebrate the people that accepted Jesus today? Yeah, it's awesome. Okay, so I just have a few more thoughts for you as we close this up. And uh, I think this will be a blessing to you. Here's what it says in Hebrews 9, 27. And just as each person is destined to die once and after that comes judgment, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. Listen, he will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. The first time Jesus came, it was to deal with our sins on the cross. The second time Jesus comes, when he comes back, it's gonna be a whole different type of experience. And so I, I want you to think about this. I'm not just ready for death, but I'm also eagerly waiting for Jesus's return. Aren't you? Yeah. If you're a Christian, you're like, yes, Lord, come soon. It wasn't always that way. I mean, I remember when I was a teenager and my, uh, you know, my pastor would preach about Jesus's return. And I, I would think in my heart, I was like, no, Lord, don't come. Not yet. I haven't even had sex yet. Don't come. I'm not ready. You know, and you're like in your 20s and you think, ah, oh, you know, there's so much life that I want to live still. I, I know it's good that Jesus is going to come back in theory, but ah, I, just, I still want to have so many experiences. Then you get a little older, amen, and your body starts to hurt. And you start to see how crazy the world is. And you're like, all right, Jesus, anytime now, you, you can come back. I'm ready. I'm ready, Lord. Come soon, Lord Jesus. I get it now. I want you to be ready for it so that you can experience all three of the meals of salvation. I said all three of the meals of salvation. Let me explain that. First, there was the Passover meal that the Israelites experienced in Egypt. And God told them, to eat it fully dressed, carrying your walking stick in hand, and to eat the meal with urgency. They weren't to have any leftovers. They weren't to eat to the point that they were really full. They were just supposed to have enough to sustain them. Uh, this was not a relaxed feast. It was a meal for captives who were anxiously awaiting their liberation. But this was a meal of salvation, the angel of death passed over them and they were saved. Then the second meal of salvation is the Lord's Supper or we call it communion. And we read about that in Matthew 26 and I'm gonna read it to you here. And what we're gonna do today, again, it's a little bit of a different sermon, but I'm gonna invite you to just go ahead and get your communion serving out. And hopefully you grabbed one on the way in. I know it's a little funny opening it up, but you can figure it out, you're a smart group. The Lord's Supper is the second meal of salvation. And here's what it says in Matthew 26. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take this and eat it for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Okay, so now the second meal of salvation looks different than the first. You realize Jesus and his disciples, they were having this moment during the Passover festival and the meal that they would normally have, the Passover meal. This is where we are reading about Jesus talking to his disciples and saying, this is my body. In the first meal of salvation, the people ate the lamb. In this meal, they're eating bread, and we still today, we eat bread that represents the Lamb of God, Jesus, whose body was broken for us. We drink wine or we drink juice that represents the blood of Jesus, the Passover lamb that was shed 
for our sins. And this is a, a meal of salvation that we as Christians participate in still 2,000 years later. And we're gonna do that right now. Go ahead and you can take the bread and drink from the cup. And Jesus told us to do this so that we would remember his sacrifice, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. See, this, this communion that we take, the Lord's Supper, it represents the beginning of a new system that replaces the old system. The old system required blood to be shed continuously and ongoingly. The new system says Jesus' blood was shed once for all time to pay the price for sin for everyone who believes. And then I love this, maybe you haven't thought about this before, but at the end of that passage, Jesus said, I will not drink wine again until, I day, until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He is alluding to the third meal of salvation, which you might call the marriage supper of the lamb. It looks very different than the first meal. It says in Revelation 19, the angel said, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the lamb. You know who's invited? Everyone who's a part of God's family. I know maybe you had a friend get married and you didn't make the list. You didn't get invited to the wedding, but in heaven, everyone who believes in Jesus is getting invited to the wedding feast of the lamb. And it looks so different than the first meal. The first meal was a, an anxious meal eaten with urgency, looking forward to ultimate redemption. The second meal, the, sec the second meal, the Lord's Supper, the meal of communion, we eat it soberly. We take it in with remembrance, thinking about Jesus's sacrifice, how he was beaten and whipped and nailed to a cross. And we're thankful that his blood was shed, but it's kind of a, a sober thing we remember. The third meal of salvation is something we look forward to. It's a meal that we'll, we'll eat it totally. It's gonna to be a wedding feast of celebration. It'll be a joyous occasion. It's gonna be exciting. It's amazing, you know, the first meal, the Passover meal, they actually ate the lamb. Now when we say communion, we eat bread that represents the lamb, but in heaven, we're gonna eat with the lamb. All together, forever in victory. God's so good, isn't he? Let's stand to our feet. We're gonna to respond to this message with a time of worship. God, you're so good and we love you. We thank you for the amazing depths of your love and the lengths you went to to save us, how you've told a story through all creation about your plan to save us from sin. I thank you that you've opened our eyes to see Jesus as the Passover Lamb of God and that by Jesus' blood, we are forgiven and saved from death. We love you, Jesus, and we worship you. You are the King of Kings. You are the Lion of Judah. You are the Lamb of God. You are worthy to be praised, and we exist for your glory. So we lift you up right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.